Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. Shalom, Evan. Shalom, Eli. Today, we also have a special guest, in addition to just the two of us. If that wasn't special enough, we have Dan Rotem, who is the new CEO of Commanders for Israel Security, the CEO of CIS, who are, of course, Israel Policy Forum's colleagues in Israel. They're a movement of nearly 300 retired high-ranking generals from the Israel Defense Forces, Shin Bet, Mossad, and Israel Police, who support a two-state solution. Dan is a Tel Aviv-based analyst who regularly briefs government officials in Israel, the United States, and in Europe. He's a good friend of the organization and a previous guest on this podcast, but for those of you for whom this is your introduction to Dan, we also have to mention that he's a professional baseball player who has represented the Israeli national team at the World Baseball Classic. Hey guys, with that introduction, right? Pleasure, pleasure to be here. So before we get into the heart of our conversation today, which is going to, of course, focus on annexation, two-state solution, your work with commanders, all that good stuff. Can you briefly tell us how you went from professional baseball to professional public policy? My professional baseball career was very short-lived. The 2007 IBL, the Israeli Baseball League, lasted about one year. And then in 2012, I joined Team Israel at the World Baseball Classic Qualifiers. Uh, My claim to fame more was uh, until recently, I was a member of the Israeli national team that year in and year out competed in international competition. But having said all that, my professional life was dedicated to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and uh, perhaps its resolution. And I'm very fortunate that over the past three and a half, three and a half years, I joined you know, Commanders for Israel Security in a variety of roles, mostly in research and messaging. Beautiful. And wait, that 2012 uh, championship, uh, the qualifiers, is that, do I recall a loss to Spain in extra innings? Was that? that yes, uh, we had a heartbreaker lot. in extra innings at that qualifiers, and we ended up not qualifying to the WBC. But then in 2017, I was not a member of the WBC squad, but they really made it deep into the tournament. Well, I remember watching that game, done, and let me tell you, it was very very stressful so i can't imagine how it was to partake heartbreaking to say the least i hope we don't have another heartbreaker on annexation but at least you have a chance we have the olympics are postponed so you just have a bit of a shoulder recovery and we can see you in tokyo next year and i don't know are, do you think the olympics are going to happen next year i think the 2020 olympics maybe 2022 yeah today i read in the paper that the 2021 olympics are now I mean, the Japanese officials said that they're maybe called into question. So maybe, Evan, yes, maybe you're right. On to the annexation Olympics. One good thing to another, right? Yes, exactly. So we've spoken on previous episodes about how annexation appears imminent with the new coalition agreement, allowing for formal deliberations on annexation to proceed beginning July 1st. This, of course, cuts to the heart of the issues both Israel Policy Forum and CIS are working on, stopping annexation and moving in the direction of separation and a two-state solution. How do you think the commanders can be most effective in bringing this message to Israeli society and Israeli policymakers? Okay, so very briefly, let me just you know, remind our audience that CIS analysis, which you can visit online, I trust you, Elido, put a link on the show notes to that study that 
uh, IPF has echoed in the US along with others. So in our analysis, in one line, certainly big annexation, but also a small one could trigger a chain reaction that at best will worsen the situation on the ground and challenge the security coordination between the PA and Israel. And at worst, will end up with uh, direct Israeli rule over three million Palestinians in the West Bank and perhaps two more in the Gaza Strip. And we believe the risk is so grave or is grave enough that it merits the most thoughtful study in all the relevant arenas, you know, strategic, security, economic, political, legal, social, all the things that annexation will inevitably touch on to one extent or another. More to your question, the four arenas that I think will ultimately determine the fate of annexation. The first one is a diplomatic international system. So the Israeli foreign policy national security apparatus headed by Netanyahu and then Gantz is the prospective minister of defense. Ashkenaz is a prospective minister of foreign affairs. So they will have that calculus and they'll be open to hearing things from the international system. Then there's a political electoral system. The coalition agreement notes that Netanyahu could bring it to a vote. He has to bring it to deliberations in the cabinet, in the Israeli sense. It's just, if you would, a select committee of ministers and in the whole government. And then he could bring it to a vote in the government or the Knesset, whichever he chooses. And so there are political electoral dynamics in play there that could affect that that decision. Then there's a procedural uh, dimension, uh, you know, whether the setup for the vote will be only the works of the Israeli-American committee that is actually currently tasked. It's a small committee that's tasked with mapping out the annexation areas and setting up that decision. Or, as CIS argues, it should be opened up and have much more input from the national security apparatus at large. And finally, there's the arena of the Israeli public, okay, who has largely ignored the Palestinian question over the past decade for a variety of reasons and is specifically not very tuned in to annexation discourse and annexation dynamics. So CIS obviously would like to operate within that realm to heighten the attention to the imminence of annexation and its prospective ramifications. So the commander is... Part of their effectiveness in reaching these different arenas is their significant military experience. And I want to speak about how that boosts their credibility, how the public reads that, but also how their military experience and how that branding squares with the fact that now we have two former IDF chiefs of staff, uh, Gonson Ashkenazi, who are pending the high court's decision on the validity of this coalition coalition agreement going to be in a pro-annexation coalition. There are a lot of personal connections between some CIS members and specifically Ashkenazi and Gantz and others who are in the political realm with lengthy military and security careers behind them. I'm not going to touch on those. They exist with or without CIS. But more broadly, the CIS expertise. And if you would, it's a really unique set of characters to work with. And, you know, I'm very privileged to do that. And and maybe later I can reflect on that for just a minute. But more specifically, we have found that although the Israeli public, much like many other publics throughout uh, the world, the Western world, and certainly in America, 
there's been somewhat of a lesser attentiveness to expertise, to experience, to, to professional analysis of things. On the political level, amongst, if you would, elite politicians, influencers, and the media, there's been great attentiveness to the CIS effort to present our study on the ramifications of West Bank annexation. We have held tens of meetings with Israeli officials, members of Knesset, ministers, and others over the past, if you would, year and a half of our effort to highlight the cost of annexation. And over there, they have great, there's great attentiveness, even amongst communities that, you know, usually not very attentive to such national security discourse, ultra-Orthodox, and others. So it's been a very meaningful part of our work to influence that echelon, if you would, a top-down effort, which now, with a run-up over the next nine weeks, if you would, toward the July 1st deadline, we would very much like to expand that and to include also the Israeli public. And you would attribute people's receptiveness to CIS's message to their military credentials, is what you're saying? Absolutely, yes. This is why politicians, even from the right, even from the heart right, are willing to engage with us, to meet with us, and not just anecdotal meetings that are, you know, based out of mutual respect, but to engage with us again and again to really learn and study this thoroughly. Because I will just note that also on their part, they don't want this decision to be in uh, uh, a very contentious one amongst the Israeli public. They have an interest and a will to enlarge from their perspective, you know, the scope of support for this. So they welcome engagement on this question, on the question of Gaza, on other national security issues, and we're happy to pursue that dialogue with them. A couple of weeks ago, uh, me and Evan debated, would you call it a debate, Are you Evan? talking about last week's podcast, or our contentious... Oh yeah, last week's podcast, it was just last week. It wasn't week even a debate, discussed... it was just a, just a more contentious discussion than normal. A contentious discussion about whether Gantz uh, in particular Gantz, but also Ashkenazi, um, would put up a fight in trying to block annexation. Um, and Evan was of the opinion that most likely not. I thought there was a chance. Now, they're both in pretty significant uh, positions. Uh, we can talk about whether or not Gantz will eventually become prime minister. Um, but for the foreseeable future, if this coalition comes to be, Gantz will be defense minister um, for the next year and a half, and Ashkenazi will be foreign minister um, from what, um, from what re- has been reported. Do they really have enough influence to uh, delay annexation? Do they have enough power in their current positions? Or is this something that is kind of inevitable if Netanyahu wants it because People have been saying he already has a majority in the Knesset in terms of uh, support. That's a, it's a tough question. I mean, I can reflect on these things, uh, but you know, who knows how that political game, political in the you know in the wider perspective, game is going to play out. I will say this. First of all, I believe the decision to go or not to go for annexation has not been made yet. What Netanyahu did in the coalition agreement is allowed himself maximum room for maneuver and to minimize the power of the opposition 
if there is opposition from within the coalition, if you would, to slow him down. In essence, the coalition agreement basically says that whoever votes against annexation or against the governmental decision um, basically breaks down the coalition. They did not secure freedom of you know, vote for the individual members on this issue. So in theory, Netanyahu has you know, a very wide path to muscle this through if he chooses to. In effect, however, I think uh, by definition, I'm not sure that he would want to put the government through such a meaningful stress test, or, or that decision has yet to be made. As you mentioned, Gantz, Minister of Defense, Ashkenazi, Minister of Foreign Affairs, like I mentioned before, are going to be very exposed to external pressures, to pressures from within, uh, the analysis of the IDF, of Mossad, of Shin Bet, of the police, of others in the national security apparatus, all that input is going to feed into them and is also going to be part of their calculus. If to support, what to support, to what extent to support, or maybe even to oppose it. I'm sure they'll also be attentive to messages from outside, specifically also from the United States. I'd already seen uh, Senator Sanders tweet uh, on this issue. Biden has been on the record against annexation. It'll be interesting to see the dynamics there in Congress and generally just the posture of the Trump administration uh, on its various players that feed into this. So I think it's, I think it's far from inevitable that annexation will unfold, although, you know, Bibi has the high ground uh, on this right now, but we are going to thrust ourselves full force in trying to stop what we deem is a wrong and bad move for Israel's security and its overall strategic disposition. No, I, I definitely agree that it's nothing is inevitable. Nothing is set in stone. There are no iron laws to any of this. And if there's anything that I would like to be wrong about, it's that annexation seems to be imminent. Although, you know, Netanyahu has crafted the coalition agreement in such a way that would be a very strange thing to write down if they weren't at least seriously considering annexation, that it would be the sole substantive policy proposal that's featured in there. But I want to talk about what Commanders is doing on this specific question and in this specific context. A couple of weeks ago, CIS sent a letter to Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi calling on them to prevent this kind of outcome of West Bank annexation. Can you speak a little bit about that and also any other efforts that CIS is working on now since the outcome of the election and the coalition negotiations that followed? Yes. So we have been trying to be quite visible in the past, you know, three, four weeks on this question of annexation. You had noted the letter we had sent to all MKs, including Ashkenazi and Gantz, that was followed up by an ad signed by 220 former high-ranking generals it got lots of attention. We know it made it all the way to the relevant addressees. In addition, we had an ad in Friday's paper just last week highlighting the cost of annexation per our study laid out in ways that are simple enough for the average reader to look over. We, uh, Some of our more senior members published an op-ed in foreign policy noting the threats to Israel's uh, strategic 
posture in this region and also its national security by move to annexation. That op-ed was signed by former Mossad head Tamir Pardo, former Shin Bet head Ami Ayalon, and former IDF Central Command head Gadi Shamni. That made quite significant noise both in the States and here. So we're basically trying to be very much upfront. Behind the scenes, I'll just say that we want to, we're now looking into how best to impact the Israeli public beyond those pieces. And by the way, I, I failed to mention 12 different op-eds were published by some of our members over the past couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. I failed to recall any issue that garnered so much you know, focused pressure from our membership and our efforts over the past couple of years. And it's uh, interesting that the media is willing to have or, or was willing to take such a, a focused messaging barrage, if you would, of op-eds and all publish them. And uh, we're not done yet. We're now putting the final touches on our social network strategy for this continued you know, advocacy effort vis-a-vis uh, politicians and other uh, influencers in Israel. All that, hopefully, in coordination or cooperation with uh, other groups in Israel. This conversation has just started. Basically, we want to maintain, we believe that, that addressing this issue is better done by maintaining, you know, a centrist, professional, or Zionist perspective that allows us to reach, you know, the mainstream between the center left and Israel's center right and really educate them about the question of annexation. Tell us, just how is it to work with so many generals and so many former Shin Bet and Mossad chiefs on a day-to-day basis? I'm sure there's only one opinion in it. I'm sure there's only one opinion and everybody agrees with everybody. So I can't imagine that that you have any dispute. (laughs) I I can certainly say that they're all strongly opinionated group of people, but it's... You know, it's been such an awesome experience in the true sense of the word. Like I said, three and a half years, mostly in research and messaging. So, you know, I was there in lengthy meetings. And what really strikes me is, first of all, the level of attentiveness and respect that they give to everybody that's around the table. Does not matter their military history, their background. If When they engage you, they listen. They're so attentive. You know, which which makes them very special, you know, especially in this day and age where everything has to come in, you know, if, if you can't make a point across in like a minute, then you lose you lose the attentiveness. But with them, they give you all the time you need to bring a point across. And they may agree or disagree with that, but you can see that across the board, no matter where they came from, the military intelligence, you know, National Security Council, just general strategy land, sea, or air, it does not matter. They are there, focused on what they're trying to do, and they're going to take as much time and perspectives that they feel like they need to make a calculated decision. That's one part of it. But also, you know, all of the, and all of them bring expertise in their specific fields, but what, what was amazing to me is how grounded it is in a holistic approach to security. So for them, security and these guys have been through wars that, you know, we can hardly imagine. So the younger ones, you know, the Gadi Shamnis of the world and others are, you know, so smart 
and so attentive, but their experience is more recent without huge conventional wars, if you would. But, you know, we had all the way back to Amnon, who founded this organization, Amnon Reshef, in the Yom Kippur War. And you have such a wide perspective of experiences. But they're all, they all view Israel's security in such a wide perspective. So it's never just about tanks or missiles or even specific intelligence capabilities. But they appreciate that to secure Israel, you need to address both the capability of your adversary but also their motivation. That leads you down a road of trying to appreciate the perspective of your, of your adversary and what's important to them and to appreciate the need you know, to secure you know, economic lives and, and general livelihood on the other side as you factor all these into the security questions. So it was just a breathtaking sense, such an experience, enriching experience to be working with these guys. I mean, in this era of tweets and sound bites, that level of respect for nuance and for depth of understanding really is unique. How do you, you know, connect this wealth of experience that the commanders bring with them and the expertise behind the organization, including your own work in policy analysis, and then you're bringing it to the Israeli public? I understand that Commanders has also done some polling to get a sense for where the broader Israeli public stands on the issues that you're working on, on annexation, on the two-state solution, on the political situation, so on and so forth. I don't want to go too far into this because we actually have an upcoming uh, video briefing this coming Tuesday with Gilad Hirschberger of IDC Herzliya on some of this polling that Commanders has done. But if you could just give us a little teaser into it and for all of our listeners, because we encourage everyone to register for that program. And of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes below. Uh, But just to speak a little bit about how Commanders is getting a read for what people are thinking on the ground, because you mentioned earlier, people, the public isn't the most attentive to expertise and to uh, deep policy analysis, even if they do respect the commander's experience. Matan Vilnai, who is now the new incoming chairman of CIS, was also a politician in his more recent uh, past. And he always makes a point that we can bring forth the best analysis, policy analysis that there is. But if it's not matched by public opinion and pressure from the public, it will only be the effectiveness will only be very limited. And so... We have engaged the Israeli public, you know, over the past three years, we try to be very thorough in uh, to conduct, to to be attentive to polling at large, but also conduct our specific polling. And to do that, we have partnered with Gilad Hirschberger of the IDC, who has helped us to get a very detailed picture of the Israeli public opinion on the Palestinian question at large, and specifically on the question of annexation. And what we have seen over the past couple of years is that the Israeli public intuitively does not support annexation. It doesn't understand the nuances of it, but by and large, it views it as something that you need to be very cautious with. Over the past six months, I guess, over the past two election cycles, we can see increased support for annexation, which you could expect because Netanyahu turned it into a rallying call, if you would, over the last two election cycles. And with Gantz and Ashkenazi voicing qualified support 
for that in the context of the Trump plan, in the context of regional understandings. Nonetheless, you did not have a fierce debate of yes or no. And so you saw increased support for it. But that support is not a given in the sense that it's still quite limited. Most Israelis still prefer either a classic two-state solution or some version of unilateral separation from the Palestinians. And it's mostly a matter of how you frame this issue and what choices you present them with. So these are our main insights. I encourage you, obviously, all our li- all your listeners to join in the call with uh, Gilad, who is really so good on this issue. And that guides our strategy as we move forward over the next couple of months to approach the Israeli public. Great. And of course, as you said, we encourage you to register for that. And we'll put a link in the description of this episode for the registration. One last question before we close it up. You placed the uptick in support for annexation in the context of the recent Israeli election cycles. And of course, we've just come off the heels of three successive Knesset elections in the span of less than a year. So is there some sort of kind of team identification effect going on that, that you know, if you're on Team Bibi, then, then you go with what he says, regardless of whether or not it sits well with your own personal beliefs. And if you're on the other side, then you go with what they're saying. And annexation has become just part of the BB brand. Or is it a deeper change going on within the Israeli society? It's hard for me to speak about deeper change. I can certainly say, and I don't want to steal Gilad's spotlight, but our polling dates back to way before Netanyahu turned this issue into the rallying call, the political or policy rallying call of the right at large. I'll say this, before this all started, before these three election cycles, support for annexation was grounded only in the ideological right. We, You could see, and I'm sure Gilad will show, that there's a significant percentage of rightists, including Likud members, including even some Jewish home members. And again, the political, you guys have followed all the, the party upheaval uh, and shuffling throughout these election cycles. But even voters of the Jewish home at the time, some of them opposed annexation. The support was only, you know, if you would, a fringe issue or the very committed ideological part of the Israeli right. But over this these three election cycles, and especially since he started talking about Jordan Valley annexation, and then on the third election cycle with the Trump plan, this has, has moved with great velocity into the mainstream and certainly aided by the pro-BB effect that you had mentioned to Evan. Exactly. And when you talk about it in the context of the Trump plan and where annexation fits in as part of the Trump plan with U.S. support, the picture changes even more. And that's something that we'll be able to see in the call with Gilad next week. So with that, I would like to thank Dan for joining us. Dan, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm sure we'll have you back again. I hope to see you back on the baseball field as well. Thank you, guys. Pleasure being with you. Thanks, Dan. And for our listeners, the details for that call that we've been talking about with Gilad Hirschberger, it's going to be this upcoming Tuesday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And again, the registration information is going to be on our website and in the description of this podcast. And one last 
point for our listeners. In the weeks and months since the onset of this COVID-19 pandemic, Israel Policy Forum has really ramped up our output, and it's all the more important now with annexation seemingly imminent, and that cuts to the core of our work in support of a Jewish, democratic, and secure Israel. Israel Policy Pod is now putting out two episodes a week. The launch of our Tuesday video briefing series has been a really great success, and our IPF Atid Young Professionals Network continues to convene virtual gatherings for their chapters across the country. So in order to keep that going, we really depend on your generous support. So we encourage you to support Israel Policy Forum's work, make a contribution if you are able, and you can do that at support.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash donate. We really appreciate all of your support, all of your help, your continued engagement with our work. We know that this is a difficult time for everyone, and we're wishing good health, be well to all of our listeners, all of our supporters, and we'll catch you on the next episode. And we hope you'll join us for our call on Tuesday.